Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. I'm the manager here at the Scholar. Thank you for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. Uh, we have a very special program tonight that I've been looking forward to. Uh, before we get started, our event series is in full swing through October, November, and even into December. Please stay tuned to our website and Facebook page for updates on all of our talks and readings. Um, and please take a print newsletter up at the front counter to check out what's happening over the next month or so. Tonight, we are here for a discussion with an expert panel of historians, Peter Levy, Chris Burrell, Crystal Moten, Say Bergen, and Laura Warren Hill. They all have contributions to the new book, The Strange Careers of the Jim Crow North, Segregation and Struggle Outside of the South, which is available for purchase up at the cafe. The rhythm of this evening will be as follows. We'll have separate mini presentations um, from each of our historians, then we'll open it up for discussion with questions from the audience. Um, so start thinking of your questions now as the presentations are going on. Um, but now I'd like to take a, this moment to introduce you to the wonderful authors we have on stage. And as I say your name, just feel free to raise your hand so our audience can get to know you. Peter Levy is a professor of history at York College where he has taught courses on recent America, the civil rights movement, women in the US, environmental history, and race and justice. He has written over a dozen books, including The Great Uprising, Race Riots in Urban America during the 1960s, among others. Chris Burrell is an assistant professor in the behavioral and social sciences department at Hostos Community College. His research interests include the civil rights movement in New York City and 20th century African-American intellectual history. Crystal Moten is a historian who specializes in 20th century United States and women's gender history with a specialization in African-American women's history. Her research examines black women's struggles for economic justice in the 20th century, urban north. Uh, she currently works as curator of American history in the Division of Work and Industry at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History in Washington, DC. Say Bergen is a historian of the 20th century U.S. focusing on social movement and African-American history. In 2017, she joined the faculty of Dickinson College as assistant professor of history. Her publications have appeared in the Women's History Review, Journal of American Studies, Journal of Inter International Women's Studies, The Nation, and elsewhere. Say is also local and helped coordinate this event, so thank you, Say. Um, <laughs> Laura Warren Hill over here, currently uh, teaches African-American and U.S. history at Bloomfield College in New Jersey. Her research and scholarship centers on the black experience in the United States, specifically in the civil rights and black power movements. The book, again, we'll be discussing tonight is called The Strange Careers of the Jim Crow North, Segregation and Struggle Outside of the South, which is an inquiry into the system of institutionalized racism created by Northern Jim Crow. At this time, please join me in welcoming our authors to Harrisburg. Hello, can you all hear me? Is this okay? Hi, I'm Say Bergen. I am local, so I'm feeling really humbled and nervous at the really, really nice turnout here. So thank you all so much for coming, and thanks so much to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. They, they could have turned me down and said, no, we don't think that you should, this event should happen, but they said yes. Um, and I also want to thank my fellow panelists who I had to convince to come here to do this with me and convince it was a good idea. So thanks, thanks to everybody in the room, basically. So I wanted to start just really briefly by kind of outlining the book a little bit before my co-authors kind of come in and talk a little bit more about their individual pieces. So uh, in 1955, the preeminent Southern historian C. Van Woodward wrote the book The Strange, Careers, uh, the Strange Career of Jim Crow. 
And that's kind of where we take the title from this book, right? And what he was doing in that book was he was laying out an argument that segregation in the South was never inevitable, that it was intentionally created, and that it had a political impetus behind it at all times. What he did in that book, though, was lay out a, his a history and a history of the history that entrenched segregation in the South, right? And it made it very hard for about 40 years for historians to come out and say that there was segregation in the North, that it was intentional, and that it wasn't accidental, right? So about 20 years ago, scholars really started to try to break down that idea, push back against the idea that segregation was just confined to the South. And what we try to do in this particular book, The Strange Careers of the Jim Crow North, is to lay out a new research agenda for understanding what segregation looked like in the North, what made it similar to segregation in the South, and what made it different to segregation in the North, right, or in the South. Um, and as we do that, we make a few key kind of interventions in this book that I want to talk to you about now. But I also want us to think about, I'm going to talk a lot about history as I do this and the story of the history, but obviously this history isn't confined just to the sort of scholars themselves, right? Who in here learned anything about the Jim Crow North when you went to school, elementary school, high school, anybody learn about it in college? Anybody ever learn it? Great, amazing. <laughs> about one guy, that's good. Um, anybody ever learn about the Jim Crow North at a museum? Oh, great. Oh my gosh, we've got two people. That's wonderful. <laughs> right, but the larger point is we, what we learn about what histories, what historians make stays with us and it bleeds into the public. It bleeds into what we see on TV and it bleeds into our education system. So we're finally hoping that the historiography, the scholarship on the Jim Crow North is robust enough now that we can start to change what our children are taught in schools and what we learn about segregation and about the struggle outside of the South in places like museums. So I want to talk about three big points that the book makes before I move us over. The first is that segregation, we want to explode the myth that segregation outside of the South was accidental or that it was based on individual decisions or that it was based on market forces. We make the case in the book that segregation outside of the South was absolutely intentional, that it was state sanctioned at every single level by city um, and municipal governments, by state governments, by the federal government, um, and that yes, it had to do with market forces, but that actually it was a very intentional exercise uh, that goes back many, many decades and in fact many centuries. The second major intervention we try to make in the book is we try to talk about the failures of liberalism as an ideology. So one of the things that people often think about uh, in terms of why the North couldn't have been segregated and why there didn't need to be a civil rights movement in the North is that the reason those things existed in the South was because it was so much more conservative or backwards or all of these sort of stereotypes that we kind of carry with us about the South. And we try to say, actually, that liberal North that we think there might have been a, a greater impetus around liberalism in the North, but it held the movement back. And in fact, it was <laughs> something so around which, bless you, something around around which people really felt the need uh, to build movements in the North and to challenge, that it was too limited to deal with the intellectual, educational, economic, and other inequalities that race creates and shapes, right? 
And then the third major point of the book is, of course, to highlight all of the rich, complex struggles for civil rights that took place across the North and the West and the country. So the book contains a number of different chapters that lay out intellectual histories of activism, which you'll hear a little bit about tonight, that lay out struggles for greater access to jobs, struggles against economic inequalities, struggles for better schools, and again, you'll hear about that tonight, and then it makes more complex the history of the uprising. So what we tend to get taught of uh, about or think of as the riots from the 1960s and 70s, and if anybody knows Peter Levy's book, The Great Uprising, you might know a little bit about that. But we try to make those uprisings look a lot more complicated than we're taught that they were. We also talk about criminal justice a lot in the book and the ways in which the movement to reform, remake, and overthrow our criminal justice system has a much longer history that predates, of course, Black Lives Matter, which is very important, um, but that Black Lives Matter and other contemporary movements build on the decades of reform around criminal justice that folks in the North and the West were doing uh, across the country from the 1940s. So I'm going to leave it there and introduce us now uh, to the next person, Chris Burrell. Thank you. Um, thank you, Say, and good, good evening. <laughs> good evening to everyone. Um, I just have to say that, you know, Say didn't have to work too hard to convince <laughs> us to come here uh, this evening. Uh, we're always, you know, ready and open to, to talk about our work and the broader issues that our volume um, tries to deal with. And so my chapter in the collection is about two black women activist intellectuals who worked to eradicate Jim Crow segregation in the public schools in the 1950s in New York City, um, Ella Baker and Mae Mallory. Um, but for the time that I've here, I'll focus on Mae Mallory. Uh, and the strategies that she used to attack systemic racial segregation and what factors made her endeavors perhaps even more difficult in the sort of ground zero liberal cosmopolitan, you know, center of the Jim Crow North, uh, New York City. And so in 1954, New York City schools had the same levels of segregation as New Orleans, Memphis, St. Louis, uh, and other southern cities. And predominantly black and Puerto Rican schools in New York City were of lower quality than predominantly white schools as they were in older buildings, typically many without medical or recreational spaces. Um, they tended to have fewer licensed teachers on staff and larger class sizes compared to predominantly white schools. And this was true despite the fact that overwhelming crowding often made it such that black students attended schools on half-day schedules. And so as a result, you could imagine that um, black and Puerto Rican students tended to score lower on standardized tests. Uh, and Baker and the prominent child psychologist Kenneth Clark showed that by the time black and Puerto Rican students were graduating high school, only about 0.2% were prepared to attend college. Uh, and so in New York, just as in the South, blacks were relegated to a second class citizenship through an effective combination of customs, policies, and laws. And an ethos of colorblindness, I put that in quotes, absent in the South prior to 1964, was ingrained in Northern language through the newly invented term de facto. 
And as James Baldwin commented in 1964, de facto segregation means that Negroes are segregated, but nobody did it. This ethos of colorblindness helped New York's politicians and bureaucrats feign ignorance about the unequal consequences of their policies on black citizens. New York City officials consistently refuted charges of segregation, instead blaming separation on impersonal market forces. The mainstream media also often downplayed the extent to which discriminatory practices were consciously utilized throughout New York City and, and the broader North. White city leaders and institutions attempted to hide codified segregation in plain sight. And so both Mallory and Baker laid bare the lies that segregation did not exist in New York City, uh, that city leaders had nothing to do with it, and that nothing could be done to fix Jim Crow New York. Mallory and Baker, in developing theories about racism in the Jim Crow North, as well as an activist practice to fight against it, they rejected the premise of de facto segregation. Both women called New York City's public school system exactly what it was, a Jim Crow system. In doing so, however, Baker and Mallory also argued that Jim Crow was not just a Southern phenomenon, but was national in scope. Now, Mallory's family moved to New York from Macon, Georgia when she was a teenager. When, while, when in New York, Mallory's activism fit into her life as a single parent of two children. During the 1950s, Mallory saw the communists in New York fighting against racial discrimination, and her affiliation with the Communist Party, although brief, did expand the knowledge that she gained from family and community and strengthened the intellectual basis upon which she thought about activism against structural discrimination. She also dabbled in organizing with um, black nationalists afterwards, but found their inactivity and politics around gender unsatisfying. Mallory continued to assert herself on behalf of her children during the 1950s when they experienced discrimination uh, and racial inequality at their school. Dissatisfied with the principal and, her, and the conditions of her daughter's junior high school, May Mallory traveled by herself to see Harlem State Assemblyman in Albany and then told the entire assembly about the condition in her daughter's school. She com the, her complaints got immediate cosmetic changes to the school, but Mallory wasn't finished. The principal tried to tar her reputation by branding her a communist and a troublemaker. But rather than be intimidated, she persisted. On another occasion, when Mallory's son was in the fifth grade, he came home with an assignment to count the pipes underneath the kitchen sink. Mallory not only called out the teacher for assigning work of such low standards, she decided at that point that the entire school's curriculum needed to be changed. And so Mallory's analysis of the problem started with her son and his teacher and their school, but she enlarged it into an action that addressed the entire city's system. Mallory recognized that the low expectations led to widespread miseducation of entire generations of black children. And such intellectual analysis of the Jim Crow North influenced the method, style, 
and explanations of her direct action. And so tired of empty talk, in 1956, Mallory and 12 other Harlem mothers formed the Parents Committee for Better Education, documenting conditions in Harlem's public schools and collecting other evidences of inferior educational practices in black neighborhoods. Mallory also spoke out at a public hearing on zoning policy in the summer of 1957, telling superintendent of schools William Jansen that her daughter's school was, quote, just as Jim Crow as those in Macon, Georgia. And then she filed a lawsuit against the Board of Education. In fact, Mallory would be involved in two lawsuits against the New York City Board of Ed. Don't have time to get into the details right now, but in the second lawsuit, Judge Justine Wise Polier ruled that the parents, her and the other parents, were protecting rather than endangering the welfare of their children by taking them out of Harlem's public schools and creating an alternative school, although unlicensed by the state. So just to conclude, the multi-pronged and multi-layered approach to leadership and movement building that May Mallory and Ella Baker displayed during their time fighting educational inequality in New York was not only emblematic of their pragmatic and radical democratic method of operation, as historian Barbara Ransby has argued, but also of the way many other women activist intellectuals participated in the black freedom struggle. These activists balanced an idealism that wished to eradicate racism in New York City and the country with a pragmatism that focused on achieving tangible political victories against Jim Crow schools in Gotham. Though not completely successful in every instance, their work as activist intellectuals enabled them to develop theories about how the Jim Crow North worked and about the most effective ways to create broad, democratic, and flexible approaches to opposing it. These theories named racism as racism and not something else and they inspire, inspire direct action protest. And all of this, both despite and because of the fact that their ideas and this movement developed in a place that constantly denied the existence of Jim Crow segregation. Thank you for listening. I'm gonna just hold this. <laughs> That's loud. Thanks everyone for, for coming and for being so interested and engaged about this really important topic. Um, my chapter in the book is entitled, We've Been Behind the Scenes, Project Equality and Fair Employment in 1970s Milwaukee. And so my contribution to the book centers the urban Midwest, thinking about um, an, an industrial city, Milwaukee, um, and the ways in which black folks who came to Milwaukee were unable to reach their economic freedom dreams once they arrived to the city. And so I focus on economic justice and black women's activism. For today though, I wanna um, share my chapter and think through two questions that my chapter attempts to answer. So the first question that the chapter tries to grapple with is, thinking about what the nature of Jim Crow employment is after the 1964 Civil Rights Act. As we all know, um, the Civil Rights Act included um, Title VII, which made employment discrimination illegal. 
And so the question is, okay, well, after Title VII, how does employment, the employment opportunities for black folks change? And so part of uh, what I uncovered is that the state of Wisconsin, and in particular, the city of Milwaukee, had several myths around African-American employment. And part of these myths stem from the fact that, as uh, my co-panelist Chris argued, in the liberal north, um, there were certain beliefs that white folks had about black people being able to achieve um, both social, political, and actually economic um, mobility. And so, um, in the 1960s, the mayor of Milwaukee, Mayor Henry Meyer, commissioned a report that was looking at the status of African Americans for the 100 years since the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, and the title of the report was called The Negro in Milwaukee, Progress Important. The goal of the report was to kind of reflect on African-American progress, but according to the report, what the authors of the report found was that there was a heartwarming story of African-American advancement, and that's what the folks wanted to tell in this report. Naturally. Naturally. Um, the other uh, point that the report made is that African-Americans enjoyed access in the area where it mattered most, employment. And the stats the report used to make this point um, were some statistics that they, they took from the census. And what they did was they compared um, employment statistics and black folks' labor participation um, from 19, between 1950 and 1960. And here are some of the numbers they cite, the report cites. So in 1950, there were 177 African-American professional and technical workers. In 1960, there were 704. In 1950, there were 264 clerical workers. And in 1960, there were 997. All right. In 1950, there were 626 craft workers. And in 1960, there were over 1,800. And so what does that lead you to believe? That there have been some growth in the number of African Americans employed in these various job categories. But what the report does not say, or take into account, is the late Great Migration. So between 1950 and 1960, the number of African Americans, specifically in the city of Milwaukee, increases by 187%, right? So then when you look at those numbers, you realize that the growth is actually very minuscule. And you can question whether advancement happens at all, or whether that growth is just a result of the number of African Americans growing in the city, all right? So it's this use or this misuse of stats and data that allow the city to say, oh, African Americans are enjoying advancement in employment, when actually it's migration that's causing those increases. By the end of uh, the 1960s, um, we have other folks concerned, other um, government groups concerned about the status of employment, um, and they call in researchers from Washington, D.C., um, and another report, Bureaucrats Love Reports, um, and another report that is completed actually tells a, a fuller story. And what this story says is that the reality of employment for uh, blacks in Milwaukee remains bleak. 
and job opportunities seem to be limited to low paying, low status, and dead end jobs. And it is at this point um, that I wanna think about what African American women activists do to address these low paying, low status jobs, um, and what a small group of women do is join a nonprofit organization um, called Project Equality. Project Equality is organized in 1965 in Chicago. It opens in Milwaukee in 1970. And it's an organization that's um, organized to address the systemic racial inequality in urban employment, and it's a religious organization. When it first begins, it um, is working with Catholics to help them realize the, their buying power, which is second only to the federal government. The organization considered itself a voluntary compliance organization, and it published an annual buyer's guide, which was, which was a yellow pages of its time. If you don't know what that is, we can talk about that in the Q&A. Um, <laughs> and so through this organization, uh, black women um, centered their economic activism not on, quote unquote, rehabilitating black workers, but rehabilitating businesses, because businesses were the, should, should be held responsible for their racist and discriminatory treatment against black workers. And so Project Equality leaders work with businesses locally and nationally across the country to bring businesses um, and corporations in line with the newly passed equal opportunity laws. Um, and so what you have are black women doing this behind, behind the scenes administrative work that was not glamorous at all. Many times this story is not told and it has not been told because there are no marches, there are no sit-ins, there are no demonstrations. It's black women calling people on the phone, uh, going to meetings, writing reports, telling people if you don't comply, you will be fined or otherwise get in trouble, right? And so the media, didn't write about these women, right? The media are not saying, oh, that report is a, is a good thing to report on. Um, and so these women did this behind the scenes work um, and they not only helped bring organizations into compliance, they also wrote about why people should care about economic justice and connected, to, connected it to especially re religious folks um, faith traditions. And so we can talk more in the Q&A about some specific examples, but I wanna leave it there. And also tease you a little bit, buy the book, read the chapter. Um, <laughs> the next uh, person who will be talking is Professor Laura Warren Hill, and the title of her chapter is Let Those Negroes Have Their Whiskey, White Back Talk, and Jim Crow Discourse in the Era of Black Rebellion. This is awkward. I don't trust myself holding the microphone. I know I'll drop it. Can everybody hear me okay? Perfect. Um, I want to thank Alex and say both for organizing this. Uh, we present a lot together actually at conferences and I don't think we've ever seen uh, the turnout this big. <laughs> so this is really exciting. Thank you all so much for, for showing up. So on, on July 27, 1964, longtime Third Ward resident Olive Labou wrote to Rochester, New York's Mayor Lamb, quote, as a citizen and a Rochesterian in the hope that he as an official would stand firm and not jelly out on the Negro problem. Her letter and many others like it from white citizens across the nation came just days after Rochester's uprising. This 1964 rebellion was the result of longstanding issues in the city's two predominantly black wards. 
over-patrolled and underemployed. Black Rochester exploded when police dogs, when police with dogs, arrested a black man at a community dance. This uprising became an expression of a tripartite, a deep resentment of police brutality, an industrial community that would not hire African Americans, and educational facilities that, not, if, if, that if not entirely separate, remained unequal. Yet from Labou's perspective, the Negro problem resulted from the migration of, quote, transient, undesirable Negroes, end quote. And her a prescription was a law and order response, a position that many in and out of Rochester would come to share. Now, whether Labou was aware or not, she was entering a national conversation, a Jim Crow discourse, taking place around migration, labor, race, and rights throughout the 20th century. And Rochester would become, a, would become prominent in this national conversation in the post-war era, uh, when Southern black migrants first moved to the city in significant numbers. So the great migration to which Crystal was referring doesn't really hit Rochester until the second wave around World War II. So as indicated by Labou's correspondence, their arrival in that northern outpost, the 1964 uprising, and the subsequent white response make visible a form of white backtalk, which expressed fears about the changing world and the explosive dangers of race and racial construction locally and globally. So the archive with which I worked, it's a collection of 104 letters that were written to the mayor and to city council, um, demonstrated that white backtalk happens not just in our political spaces, but in homes, among friends, and it then gets transcribed into local newspaper editorials and letters to officials, signaling to those officials and to courts that they must take note of white displeasure. Labou, of course, was not alone. Accompanying her letter to Mayor Lamb were a hundred others, including one from Tallahassee, Florida, that began, Dear Frank, we will make a deal with you Rochester people, but on our terms. We will take back into Dixie all 35,000 of your Negroes for $150,000 each, and in cash, no checks. Johnson additionally rebuked the mayor for banning the sale of liquor during the 1964 Rochester Rising. Given that blacks would not act properly if sober, as the Jim Crow discourse went, Johnston implored the mayor, let those Negroes have their whiskey. With its crass tone, Johnston's letter contrasts the often polite segregationism evident in the North. Yet in the face of such commentary, a reporter for a local newspaper summarized, we are beginning to realize that discrimination, Northern style, can be even meaner in some ways than anything designed by the most unreconstructed Southerner. Meaner, it seems, because it was so insidious. The Rochester newspapers took active part in such racial backtalk, noting that, quote, the slums should be prevented from sinking into jungle conditions, real ghettos where even the police fear to tread. Such jungle tropes recur throughout the paper's reporting and can be found in those 100-plus letters to the mayor and the city manager that have survived. The city's failure to reallocate resources, other than police, severely strained municipal services, housing stock, parks, and schools in the increasingly black and segregated wards. Inevitably, conditions deteriorated. Meanwhile, the dwindling number of white residents in those increasingly black wards developed a siege mentality. The local paper reported, quote, suddenly the Negroes seemed all around us, and not just in the big cities, but right here in Rochester. They took over the slums, and the slums began to spread. 
Likewise, the paper quoted city officials who echoed the other tropes of the Jim Crow discourse, which marked African Americans as welfare frauds and drunks. Uh, quote, the city seems to have become a victim of its own generosity, an unnamed official opined. Rochester is known as a soft touch for welfare and relief chiselers. As a result, there's been a large influx of shiftless Negroes with no real desire to work for a living. They are the people who live in squalor, who won't try to better themselves, whose main interest seems to be where the next bottle of booze is coming from. But such tropes can't function without adherence. Who then are the people creating and reifying this Jim Crow discourse? The letter writers describe themselves as ordinary white people, from progressive liberals to fiscal conservatives, as moms, NAACP supporters, taxpayers, and citizens, and who all fervently believe in American democracy and justice. Collectively, they circulate ideas and tropes about black life, evincing their authoritative right as white people to the body politic, and ultimately, mainstreaming this discursive backlash. Like Labou, they believed in their ability to influence events, and indeed, official speeches and policies enacted subsequently seemed to suggest their impact. While a more outlandish letter, such as Johnson, could be dismissed as histrionics, the majority reflects the earnest engagement of citizens insisting on their entitlement to the political system, as well as their anxiety at the disruption of their racial realities. A year after the Rochester Rising, a local sociologist asserted that, quote, what the riots did for many whites then was to permit the public expression of hostile attitudes. This was a time for people with hostile attitudes to express their hostility without feeling guilty. Letters such as Labou and Johnston's making demands, sharing advice and strategies, and calling for a halt to migration reveal both white fears and the contextualization of these fears in contemporary events. The uprisings of the 1960s prompted white citizens to talk back racially and to reconstruct blackness as the Negro problem rather than the Jim Crow conditions they perpetuated all while reasserting their racial priorities. The 1960s was a turbulent era around the globe, particularly for colonialism and white supremacy. For black folk worldwide, it was a moment of possibility. Any and every tactic was used to secure freedom and justice. African Americans had integrated schools and universities, increased access to public space, and secured legislation to protect their political and economic rights. Increasingly, too, they rejected and challenged police efforts to limit and control their movements. Black equality was conceivable in such a moment. Thus, many whites, North and South, rallied to uphold white supremacy. Using the familiarly perilous tropes, liquor, welfare, Africa, and animalism, they agitated around black inferiority and the insecurity it created for the state. The most visible manifestations culminated in a local and national entreaty for law and order, calls that would be realized ultimately in the election of Richard Nixon in 1968, and you know, then again, Trump. In, uh. Along the way, white northerners and southerners negotiated a common cause, seizing an opportunity to bridge regional differences by joining once again on the race question. The 1964 Rochester uprising and the subsequent correspondence provide a window through which to observe this national Jim Crow discourse as it unfolded. And to my left is Professor Peter Levy, who will speak from his chapter, The Media and H. Rep. Brown, Friend or Foe of Jim Crow. Thank you, Laura. 
So I hope you can hear me uh, with the risk of sending this timer off again and turning it into a hard-boiled egg. Um, I just wanted to thank all of you coming out. This is my second time I've been here, and it's just a wonderful sense of community whenever I come here. Uh, and I also want to thank the three people who edited and brought us together in the first place. So Jean Phil Harris, Kamosi Woodward, and Brian Purnell brought 20, unknown, 20 scholars who didn't know each other together about five years ago. Uh, for a two-week uh, seminar in New, in New York uh, and kind of started us on this project of looking at the Jim Crow North. And they have remained our mentors and I think the glue uh, that has helped us kind of, I guess, with our eyes on the prize of keep doing this. But as Laura said, this is the best audience I think we've ever had. So we'll, um, I'm going to read from my paper. Originally I had some images, but I didn't want to shine it on the foreheads of my uh, fellow colleagues here. So. <laughs> Traditionally, the media, especially the national media, has been cast as a foe of Jim Crow. Most notably, Gene Roberts, a veteran reporter and editor with the New York Times, in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Race Beat, contends that the national media, headquartered in the Northeast, through its sympathetic coverage of the civil rights movement, played a leading role in toppling the Southern way of life. Legendary black activist John Lewis, likewise, in his autobiographical account of the movement, wrote, if it hadn't been for the media, the civil rights movement would have been like a bird without wings, a choir without a song. But was the media friend or foe of Jim Crow, especially when we consider its relationship to the struggle for racial equality in the North? By conducting a case study of how the media covered H. Rap Brown, who rose from obscurity to fame, or perhaps more accurately, infamy, in the summer of 1967, my essay suggests that the media was a friend of Jim Crow. Rather than bolstering the fight against racial discrimination and inequality, its coverage of Brown helped prop up segregation and racial inequality in the North. Beginning on July 25, 1967, as racial revolts swept across the nation, H. Rock Brown appeared repeatedly in the headlines of the nation's leading newspapers and on, in the national news. He was portrayed as one of the chief instigators of these riots. The New York Times declared in the course of less than a week that Brown and his colleague Stokely Carmichael were linked to riots in Cambridge, Maryland, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Nashville, Tennessee, and indirectly to riots elsewhere. Also, the headlines rang out that he was being hunted by the FBI for inciting a riot and arson and gunfire in Maryland, and that he'd be in he had been ultimately uh, sent to jail for the same. Upon being freed from jail, media outlets across the nation highlighted Brown's declaration, quote, violence was American as cherry pie, leaving out the context of this statement. A widely syndicated photograph of Brown, the first image most Americans ever had of him, showed him with the Band-Aid over his eye, sunglasses, while conveniently leaving out that the Band-Aid covered a gunshot wound he had received from a deputy sheriff while peacefully escorting a teenager home from a protest. In the months that followed, subsequent news coverage reinforced this image of Brown as a violent lawbreaker. To make matters worse, the media painted him as a communist for his trips to Cuba, as an anti-Semite because he was sympathetic to the Palestinians, and as a habitual lawbreaker. True, some stories noted that he had yet to be convicted of a crime, but such caveats were usually buried deep in the back pages of the newspapers or obscured by headlines that emphasized sensationalism over empathy. In contrast, the black press, which generally was not a friend of, of black power, uh, as advocated by Brown, painted him in a much more favorable light. For the black press, the main story was not Brown's violent rhetoric, in other words, his words, but his deeds, 
and the deeds of the government. In the words of the New York Amsterdam News, a black press, government authorities had relentlessly pursued Brown uh, so as to silence him. Or as attorney Arthur Kinoy pointed out, the real goal of the government was to create an atmosphere of fear and paralysis so that the wellspring of social action can't, be, can't move in a directed form. In 1971, in fact, the state of Maryland dropped all the charges against Brown. The black press emphasized that this proved all along that there had never been a case against him, that the, he had been attacked by the press for his words, not his deeds. The national press, in contrast, buried these stories on the back pages. Interestingly, one of the people who first broke the story uh, that Brown was not going to be prosecuted was Bob Woodward, who was then writing for the Montgomery Centennial, not the Washington Post. He then, a couple weeks later, got a job with the Post, but never mentioned Brown again. Not until 1973 did the national newspaper, the Washington Post, accept some responsibility for Brown's mistreatment. And this came in a column written by William Raspberry, a black columnist. But by then, Brown and the black power movement were clearly in retreat. While I don't have the time and space to fully explore why the national press covered Brown in this way, Brown and his allies all along have viewed the national press not as a foe, but as a friend of Jim Crow. They noted that the national media still had very few black reporters and even fewer blacks on their editorial boards and was part and parcel of a larger power structure. In 1967, SNCC's newspaper, The Movement, wrote that black people know the mass media is opposed to them. Brian Purnell and Jean Theo Harris, in their introduction to the book, The Strange Career of Jim Crow, observed that Americans have been taught that Jim Crow's history lies in the South. The North, as the story goes, frowned upon the South's peculiarities. Rather than deal with their own racism, uh, honestly, Northerners pivoted constantly, proclaiming their openness and lack of racial bias. Nowhere was this more true than when it came to the national press, which by recollecting the positive note it played in fostering the civil rights movement in the South, obscured the way it all along with other liberal institutions maintained Jim Crow in the North. Thank you. And I'm not hard-boiled yet, that's pretty good. We're now going to open it up to the audience for questions. So if you have a question, just feel free to raise your hand, and I will come around with the mic. Has life in America gotten better for black people? Okay, um, I think that it's all—it's a—it's kind of a false choice um, to talk about better or worse. Uh, in that you can—you have to be able to talk about both progress and resistance to progress happening simultaneously, uh, and that as a society there have been ways in which we can talk about. Um, improvement in certain circumstances for some groups or some segments of the black population while at the same time also um, regression uh, in other ways for other segments of, of the black population. Uh, so I don't think that, I think that binary is, is very dangerous and, and ultimately not 
as productive or constructive as we may hope, as we might think, um, to sort of go down that to go down that path personally. Question over here. A few months ago, I saw an article in the Harrisburg Patriot News that talked about redlining in Harrisburg. I am not a Harrisburg native. I moved here in 1976, um, and I know that there were riots and things in the late 70s that caused, late 60s that caused white flight, but this whole concept of redlining, restricted housing, neighborhoods, and things like that, um, I'm only now beginning to understand how dangerous that was, and I think that that's another instance of Jim Crow mm -hmm. at, its, mm -hmm. at its finest. Mm -hmm. um, would any of you care to comment on that, and is that addressed in your book? I actually, um, as you could probably tell from my piece, I write about Rochester, New York. And I think one of the, the things um, that I first notice about this, this recounting that you're doing is the connection between white flight and the uprisings. In truth, what was happening was that white flight had begun long before any of the uprisings happened. Uh, the uprisings in, in large part are related to the resources being moved from the cities out to the suburbs and the, the cities being left to deteriorate without a tax base. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's the first thing that I would say. But I grew up in upstate New York in a really rural area. Um, there were two African-American students in our school they were brother and sister. And you know, segregation, white flight, I mean, this was not even part of my lexicon. I had no clue about it. But as I went to college, I, I went to a school called Geneseo outside of Rochester. And it was amazing to me how this segregation, this, this redlining, this Jim Crow North shaped every facet of white and black life. And we rarely talk about how it shapes the suburbs. We rarely talk about what it does to um, our knowledge base of US history as we just kind of erase and ignore that kind of movement. But I think any city that you look at in the north with a sizable black population is going to have a similar story. I think that to that I would just add that for, for those of us who work on the Jim Crow North, the history of redlining is one of the things that pushes us to say that the state was involved with segregation in the North, right? And so that really calls into question the validity of a de jure de facto binary, right? Mm -hmm. it, it invalidates what we think of as de facto, which is supposed to just mean crap just happened, right? Like people just naturally moved where they wanted to move or something like that, right? Whereas de jure is supposed to be the state did that. Well, redlining means the state segregated the North. And in fact, it created slums, right, particularly, and it racialized those slums. So for us, it's really important to think about redlining as a major creation of state-sanctioned segregation outside of the South and in the South, too. Can I, I and, and just because the first question asked about progress and poverty, I think in the same way we obscure the ways that state uh, actions continue to perpetuate uh, the racial separation of Americans. Um, so I live in Baltimore County, 
and one of the big issues right now is whether landlords have to accept tenants who are taking um, essentially rental vouchers to move to a Section 8 vouchers. And it's the county executive is pushing for it. Uh, and there's a massive movement mm -hmm. in the county uh, against it. And the language that is used is equivalent to the language that was used in the 1960s, that this is taking away property rights, um, that this will lead to the spread of crime. And, and so we fail to see that it's, you know, the same things are happening over and over again. And then I think as Laura points out, then what happens in these racialized spaces is we don't even learn about the history of redlining. We don't even learn about the way real estate agents, or sorry, whites don't learn about it. Blacks know about redlining. Blacks know about, race, about being steered. But much of the white community doesn't because they don't, they don't face that. Um, but it's not something old that's taking place. That's a, that's a Quick plug for The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. He was here a few months ago talking about redlining and um, housing discrimination. Uh, question over here. Thanks for being here. I'm sure you're well aware of Michelle Alexander's recent book that also has Jim Crow in its title. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you might contrast some of the points in your book with some of the th conclusions that she reaches in her book. Yeah, they're looking at me because my chapter's on the criminal justice system. <laughs> Hi, John. Um, yeah, so I think that, right, so Michelle Alexander, for those that don't know, right, she argues that mass incarceration is the new Jim Crow. I think she set up a really important agenda for those of us who care um, and want to research how Jim Crow gets perpetuated, right? Where I think the book, this book, and other places are going is pushing her timeline back. So she's arguing that the war on drugs uh, in the 80s is this really important starting point for creating mass incarceration. Uh, I make a case that actually there's a, a sort of spike in the crime statistics in the 60s, and that's actually really, really shaky because some people are doctoring those numbers quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, but that is an earlier crime wave that kind of happens that then puts pressure on judges uh, to mete out very, very, very unequal justice, um, and that in some ways mass incarceration has to be thought about as starting in the 60s and that particular point. And so I think about a judge, one black judge in particular in Detroit, uh, who's really trying to push against that and then trying to actually follow the law and do differently. He gets uh, death threats, people try to impeach him. There's this whole movement for years to ouster him from his elected office on the bench. So I think that um, what Michelle Alexander did is sort of open the door for lots of us to say, ooh, let's take this question a little bit further. And so we're taking it back to the 60s and we're also saying, you know, there were earlier wars on drugs too. Actually, Nixon started one, and, Ke and not Kennedy, sorry, um, Johnson tried to start one. So she started something really, really important. Uh, but I think that all of us are going, let's take this back further, Michelle, let's go, and let's go. That's what I would say. Anybody else? Question in the second row. Thanks for your, uh, your talk. I was wondering if you could help us to put into a historical perspective the current phenomenon of gentrification. Um, you know, on the one hand, you could think of gentrification as a reversal of the, the white flight or the Jim Crow North or uh, redlining. On the other hand, it's, when I hear about gentrification, it's all, almost always in the context of a pejorative in that it puts a lot of 
economic stress on the people who are in the neighborhoods that are being gentrified. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. The interesting um, point about that question is we were all just talking about gentrification. Um, and now as a new resident of DC, um, the question of gentrification is a really important one. But um, like you are mentioning, typically when we think about gentrification, we think about um, kind of it's the negative impacts on um, particularly um, lower economic or working class people who are then pushed out of neighborhoods and don't ha have access to the new development that perhaps gentrification affords. Um, but there is another perspective, um, and this perspective is for me more anecdotal. Um, I would have to do more research on it. Um, but I was chatting with um, a long-term Washingtonian who, you know, generational, generations of her family lived in the District of Columbia, um, such that they had purchased you know, several properties in the district um, at a time when, you know, areas where they lived in were not um, the most desirable, thank you. Um, and as a result of the booming DC population and the number of uh, all types of people moving into the district, um, they decided to sell their property in now what is a desire, our desirable neighborhoods. Um, and her point was that when we think about, when we have a kind of narrow understanding or limited understanding of um, um, kind of African Americans, um, real estate and housing, you know, we, we don't, we, we diminish the agency that African Americans have over their own financial destiny. And so her relatives, her family decided to sell their house um, for the profit that it would give them, right? They were not dispossessed. They made this decision. They bought this house decades ago um, when it was an affordable price being working class Washingtonians. And then as a result of this boom, they were able to sell their house and get a, a really, um, big profit for it. And so where are those stories in our analysis of gentrification? Where do we say, oh, black people do have agency and they are not just being acted upon um, by these forces? She was not discounting the ways in which racial and economic inequality does dispossess some black folks, but when we only see black folks as, you know, the, the poor, disadvantaged people, where is the room for black agency, particularly in housing. Um, and so in some ways, our hyper-focus on, on one aspect of gentrification um, has diminished and erased other stories of, to answer your question, you know, some black folks being able to take advantage, and in her family's case, of the GI Bill, which gave people access to education and certain types of jobs, which would allow them to purchase their home in a certain red line neighborhood that is now worth more money, right? Um, and so the question is, how can we make um, space for um, all of, of a, an expansive understanding um, of African Americans' economic situations while holding in both hands the ways in which development um, does dispossess communities of black people? Mm -hmm. Question in the third row. So I, first I had a comment for the professor on the end. Um, 
about what you your response to him um, that there's there's been uh, minimal growth and every what what has been happening what was happening before is still happening now it's just disguised as something else slavery is now mass incarceration low pay low, low paying black women lower than everybody else is a form of slavery as well you know not being able to pay your rent or for food and you know being able well that's a lot of people but statistically black women are paid less than everyone else mm -hmm. they can do the same amount of work and it won't matter and also I, my question was um, which might be considered as a sensitive question but do you feel that um, uh, one of the elements that's you know sustaining white supremacy now could be that you know do you think white fragility has a lot to do with racism and fear you know, of black people or Mexicans being the majority in the country from the 60s till now, would that, do you think that that could be like kind of the cause of um, the continuous, the continuing racism? Um, yeah, I think that, I think that fear does play a lot into like a, a fear of what kind of society would be if we actually dismantle white supremacy, right? So that uh, because democracy is something that some would argue has never really been tried in full because we haven't had that sort of expansive and inclusive democracy to this point, uh, that you know, what would uh, an American society that was fully democratic, that was not based in, and sort of centered on white supremacy, what would that actually look like? Um, and there's a lot of fear of when you think about uh, a pie of resources as you know, not continually expanding, but having to be in a sort of zero-sum game. You know, one group has, if one group gains, then another group has to lose, um, you know, then you try to hang on to what part of the pie you have, um, you know, with a lot more um, ferocity. Um, but I also think it, it goes, and I think what my uh, women show is that, you know, this ethos of colorblindness, right? This, this, this myth that uh, if we treat everyone equally um, under the law, that things will sort of work out equitably in terms of um, uh, opportunity. Uh, and that has not been the case um, historically. Until we admit and deal and, and actually begin to deal with white supremacy, right, as the sort of foundation. Right. Oh, sorry. Right. So like we can't ignore the things that happened in the past. We actually have to talk about it. Right. We have to deal with it. We have to fi find a way to um, repair all the damage that's been done psychologically and, you know, and all the other ways that you guys said to the black community. I'm Puerto Rican. I'm also Afro-Latino, as you can tell. Uh, so I, um, I see a lot of the, plus I went to Cumberland Valley, so please. Yeah, <laughs> in the 80s, for Christ's sake. <laughs> so yeah, I understand. Oh, I'm so sorry. And, and to continue um, 
thinking about this question, I didn't get into it um, a lot because I ran out of time, um, but the, the woman who I profile in my chapter, her name is Betty Thompson, <clears throat> and as I mentioned, um, the organization Project Equality was geared specifically toward people of faith and asking people of faith to be honest about the racial injustice um, that was transpiring in American society and connect that honesty to their faith, right? Mm -hmm. Because of this past and present, uh, Betty Thompson would say, um, history um, and nature of unemployment, of, um, of discrimination in employment, that people of faith really had a responsibility to address that. And the way to address that was to be honest about the past, but then also um, be honest about one's moral responsibility to address inequality and discrimination. And so to speak to your point, um, Betty Thompson um, often wrote about the emotional and psychological toll um, that black folks experience because of um, racism and discrimination. Um, and what she would say is that jobs was just the, you know, just one aspect of that, um, of that disenfranchisement, but it was a gateway. Um, but it was also up to people of faith, she would say, to help eradicate that, but you could only do that by being honest about what the problems were. When we were putting this book together, uh, as Peter mentioned, the, the 20 of us, it got pared down as the book went to publication, but we came together and we grappled with these ideas of what are our people in our various cities facing? What are they dealing with? And one of the things that were, were common to all of our stories is that the activists in the North not only had the struggle of being active, of activism and movement, but they had to convince the people around them that there was a problem to begin with. You know, when there are no fire hoses, when there are no Bull Connors, when there are no nightly news stories about what, what they're dealing with, it's really hard to get that same kind of moral outrage in the North. It's really hard to get people to say, like, oh, you live in that suburb and you don't understand how you're contributing to the inequality in our school districts, right? People don't, in the North we found were really, I mean, the people I'm writing about, right? These white folks, these white women who are in the PTA and going to soccer club together. I mean, I'm, I'm those women, right? I, I know them. And they're, they're, they believe so strongly that they're on the right side of history and they cannot see the ways in which they are partaking and benefiting and reproducing all of the structures that make a Jim Crow North. And so I think for all of us who contributed to this book, part of what we are hoping to do is, is create a conversation, a space where silences around what the problem is in the North can can come to fruition, can come to places like this, and we can start to be honest about who we are and, and how we fit into these these stories. We've got a question on the stairs. Hi, I know there's talk about um, you know the possibility of reparations for the Civil War for slavery, but um, for slavery, but um, what about reparations? Do you ever talk about or think about reparations for the, you know, sort of post-World War II, you yes. know, because it is de jour, and, you know, it was codified, as you say, and generations, you know, were disadvantaged, disadvantages that are still evident, strongly evident today. 
there, there are a couple of really good pieces if you're interested. Uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates had one in the Atlantic a few years back that starts with the period of enslavement but runs right up through the present moment. And then um, Martha Biondi also has a, a piece that she did on it. They're both excellent. And, and if you are teachers, any of you, these are great pieces to use with students because it helps them to think about the ways that the debt our country owes is not just to what happened during slavery, but all the way on through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, please, Peter. Just because I had happened to pull this quote up while we were talking about housing, uh, so it comes from a, a book re written by Kianga Yamada Taylor. She's just yeah. come out with even a, a more powerful book, but she, she writes, if there is a single indicator to measure the status of black women in the United States, it would be the difference in the median wealth of a single black woman compared to a single white woman. The 2010 study found that the median wealth for a single white woman is 41500 compared to a paltry $100 for a single black woman. And I remember when I read that, I go, that's just ridiculous. And it's obviously not just slavery. That is mostly a phenomena of the last 50 years. Um, her work is not only on the period we're looking at, uh, but on also what happened in the last 10, 20 years with the real estate crisis in this country and how um, African Americans were preyed upon uh, by what predatory lenders, and then lost whatever wealth they had started to accumulate in the last 20 years. So, yeah, I think we have to talk about the continual ways that that wealth gap was created, um, and it's more than even being honest about how we talk. It's honest about the structural differences that exist. We have time for just one more question, front row. Okay, two more questions. Hi, I'd like to first of all thank the panel, and I'd like to say I'm 70. And I grew up in New York City. I was born in the South Bronx. And I went to school. She's from your neighborhood. OK, well, hi. And uh, I want to thank you for uh, bringing up blacks and Puerto Ricans, because, I, because my last name was, is Marquez. And Marquez, however you want, we can go there. And went through exactly what you're talking about, because I grew up. I was born in the South Bronx, but when I was seven, because of a family tragedy, I ended up moving to the Upper West Side. And I got to go to some phenomenal schools. And both of my principals were African-American women, which said to me, hey, you can do this mm. for the first time. And we did learn about things that I never would have learned about or went to places that we would have never gone to. And, um, and I'd also like to say, I think that when you use the word uprising, it is so much more powerful and so much more true than using the words riots. Because mm -hmm. there is a point at which, I know for me as a woman of color, to say enough is enough. I'm at that point now. I've been at that point before, but never as much as now. And I really appreciate every, every one of your perspectives, especially yours. <laughs> um, um, well, thank, thank you for that comment. I actually, I, I grew up in Harlem myself. I teach in the South Bronx now. Um, you know, on the, in the 1950 census, you know, black and Puerto Ricans were one, one racial group, according to New York City. Uh, and so there is this, this not only similarity, but incredible overlap between um, African American and Latino activism in the city. Um, that you know, I'm continuing to learn a lot more about uh, now. That you know, I certainly uh, didn't sort of come 
at, at it um, with with that deeper knowledge when I first began, you know, sort of researching New York City and 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 focusing on African Americans in New York City. Um, but you know, one book that that does try to really sort of bridge that gap is um, Upsetting the Apple Cart by Anthony Opie Taylor, I believe it is. Um, and so. Yeah, understanding the the sort of symbiosis of those of those struggles, uh, particularly in a place like New York, where the um, Puerto Rican population in particular really rises pretty um, dramatically during the post-war period, uh, is is important for us who who look at the the Black struggle as well. Thanks. I just wanted to respond to your comment about the uprisings or rebellions as as we do this. Those of us who focus on the Jim Crow North have grappled with this language. We've, we've had to fight newspaper articles, audiences who want to use the word riot. And I think what, what we do when we use the word riot is we miss that the uprisings were the last step, not the first step. We miss how much activism, how much organizing, how much movement went into doing things the, the so-called right way, you know, the, the political way, the way that was supposed to be, you know, the be-all and end-all of organizing. It didn't work. Nobody was listening. Mm -hmm. And so I think that your, your point is so important, especially in respect of this work, that people were fed up and it wasn't like they just got there in 30 seconds because their team didn't win. I mean, it was a lifetime of this, this kind of, of stuff. Last question in the back. So I am here to learn because I need to learn about my white privilege. <clears throat> but I would like to, to uh, say something about, someone mentioned Trump and I, I know we probably shouldn't talk about that here but, or as much or I hate giving him, you know, any more notoriety, but I, I was really surprised at the folks that I learned about, that I had worked with for 30 and 25 years after the election, their language, and they were in fact racist. And I had no clue. It didn't come up in a daily conversation. So the other assumption I have is that in the South, the racism was more obvious, and in the North, we kind of hid it behind different things. So that's a good assumption? Okay. Mm -hmm. So my question is, is it good that we're hearing people say what they are? Like, I am so amazed and appalled that they're stating that they're racist, that the the layer, the veneer was so thin, I had no idea. And in talking to some of my black friends, I'm like, isn't this kind of amazing that people feel this way? And they're like, oh honey, you don't know anything, you know? So I'm trying to learn that. But is it better to know? Is it better for them to state that? Malcolm said that these are wolves in sheep's clothing, and it is better to know your enemy than to wonder who your enemy is. Okay, if there's no more questions, um, let's give another round of applause for our authors. You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com.
The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.